0: Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on Saturday, June 5, 2021. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for this evening's podcast. This evening, we're talking with the Alliance Party's political director, Tim Cotton. The subject? Anything goes. We'll talk about a range of topics, starting with the uh, continuing fallout from the January 6th insurrection in our nation's capital... But we'll also talk about voter suppression versus the For the People Act, otherwise known as House Bill 1 or Senate Bill 1. We may also touch on other subjects such as, well, you know, are we descending into fascism? Not just the U.S., but countries all over the globe. The pushback against critical race theory, for example, fits into this disturbing trend toward fascism, as fascism seeks to glorify a mythic history which runs counter to reality. And we'll talk about Israel and Palestine because they represent somewhat of a crucible for all the world to see. It plays out as an example of how the tendencies of colonialism runs into the ugly reality of human suffering. It forces us all to look at ourselves and our nations and ask whether we are a species destined to fight and die as opposed to learning how to work together and find peaceful solutions. Finally, if we have time, we'll look at the gaping abyss known as the National Debt. If you have a look at the U.S. debt clock at usdebtclock.org, you'll see that the U.S. national debt is upwards of $28 trillion today and counting, which works out to a debt per citizen of about $85,000. So let's get started. Tim, uh, welcome to the Alliance Party. Well, I should say welcome back to the Alliance Party after dark, and thank you again for joining us this evening.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be back, Tim.
0: So let's talk about the uh, fallout from the January sixth uh, insurrection. What are you seeing these days that um, that is still reverberating throughout politics? Uh, just my own personal observation: I'm seeing members of the of the GOP trying to move on to other topics, but um, it, it's almost as if they try to make to make it as though the January sixth insurrection never occurred. So, um, what are your what's your take on this?
1: Well, I think uh, there was a congressman this week, and his name is escaping me. But he was he was referring to how we're trying to put this away, and and make it like it never happened. Mm -hmm. But but, what, especially to the people that were there that day, you know, even more on a different side than us is, is how severe and and how bad this really was, and they just want it to go away. One because you know they don't want to be tied to it, but they don't want to run from it either. And um, it's it's symptomatic of what's going on in politics in America. And I think the American people, uh, many of them anyway, would be happy to m- pretend it never happened. Like, mm-hmm. like this doesn't happen in America. This isn't a third world, you know, warring warlord led country. Mm-hmm. But it did happen. And we should, the lessons should be learned uh, is the severity of it. And I think that's, that's really the biggest fallout of it right now is the attempt to pretend it never happened where, you know, it's one of the most severe occurrences in, in all of American history.
0: Yeah. I remember back in the 1980s, I visited Washington, D.C., um, got to tour the White House, and they were actually repainting the White House at that point. And as part of the process, they were scraping off some of the old paint. And when they did that, you could see some of the burn marks from the War of 1812, when the the last time the Capitol was attacked by the British forces and uh, literally burned the White House. Um, and the soot marks were still there. And And I remember thinking at the time, I was a fairly young man. It was way back in the time of Reagan. And uh, I I remember thinking in my time, wow, I can't imagine that ever happening again. Um, And here we are. You know, it it did happen. And I think a lot of Americans do try to repress that. That's one technique of uh, dealing with shocking news, repression and denial. Uh, These are old concepts discovered by Freud himself. But uh, overall, I think that it's going to affect us in the future, isn't it? The, the, the Republican Party uh, has not owned up to it, and, but they still continue this so, so-called big lie. In fact, the latest thing I've heard now is that Trump expects to be reinstated uh, in the month of August for some, through some mechanism or another. And it sounds to me like they're, they're just uh, rattling their sabers again and getting ready for another um, possible insurrection.
1: Yeah, I mean, insurrections don't go away as long as the people who are who are inciting them are still around. I mean, mm-hmm. it will always be that threat and, you know, they'll always be on guard for it because of that. Yeah.
0: Well, one of the offshoots is voting rights. And because the there was such a large turnout in 2020, such a large passionate turnout, especially by uh, uh, minorities, that... Um, There is now a conscious effort within state houses across the nation to suppress the votes. In fact, according to the Brennan Center for Justice, and this is an article that they just published on May 28th, they said that between January 1 and May 14th of 2021, at least 14 states have enacted 22 new laws that restrict access to the vote. And uh, they cited the, the year 2011 as being the last time we've had this much uh, voter suppression laws being passed in our Congress, and they they referred to or into our state houses, I should say, and they referred to that as a backlash to the election of our first black president. So um, it continues today. They say we've already caught up to with where, where we were in 2011, and since there's a third of the of the state houses are still in session at this point. It's only going to go further. So, um, in the nature of these restrictive laws, they they range from limiting access to the polls to shortening hours of operation, making it more difficult to get an absentee ballot or making it more difficult to submit an absentee ballot or reducing the number of polling places. And some states, uh, well, two states in particular, Florida and Georgia, have uh, eliminated bringing snacks and water to the people waiting in line to vote is I mean, it just sounds to me like there's a, a tremendous conscious effort at this point to suppress votes for obvious reasons, right? To support the big lie.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's a, you know when we were kids, we would play a game, and if we couldn't win the game, we would always attempt to change the rules so that mm-hmm. we could win the game. And, you know, I guess that's still going on as we grow up. Um, It's really an attempt to ensure that politicians get to choose their voters rather than voters choosing who the politicians are. Yeah. And that's very undemocratic and it's very opposed to, um, you know, that's worse than the government we were under when we had a revolution to form our own country. (laughs) We're actually looking, people are looking to establish something that was worse than that.
0: Yeah, back then, I don't think they actually identified who the qualified voters would be. They, they kind of left it to the states. And um, through the Constitution, actually, I think it was um, Article 1, Section 4. In fact, I've got the quote right here. Article 1, Section 4 states that the times and places and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. Now, there is another clause to this that, that says, but— There's a big but right here. But that Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations, except as uh, to the places of choosing senators. Um, And just a side note, Amendment 17 sort of um, nullified that last clause right there. But basically they're saying that it is constitutional for Congress to uh, make uh, at any time a law to alter regulations that are being carried out by the states. So this uh, opens up the door to... Uh, H.R. 1, which is the For the People Act. Can you comment on what that is?
1: Well, the For the People Act is, to me, it, it, there's two pieces to to that. One is about uh, reforms for voter access, and the other is on voter choice. The first part is, is absolutely necessary, and, and, and it really is a list of the things that the Alliance Party supports. Expanding voting rights, um, reducing the influence of money, um, it limits uh, the way states can gerrymander and you know choosing their own their own uh, voters and uh, new ethics rules and all the things that make it easier for people to vote which is what you know the american you know the whole american dream the whole idea of america was built on and and, and has gotten better you know as, as used to be every time we made a change, we made it easier to get voting rights, but Mm -hmm. now we're going in the opposite direction. So the first half of that uh, is, is very good at, I support it a hundred percent. The second part, however, destroys voter choice. So in one half, they're making it easier to vote, but in the second half, they're making it, they're giving you less choice of who to vote for. The reason, and what I mean by that is um, they're really going to, it secures Uh, a two-party system, that there really can't be any alternatives to that because that's the existing uh, large parties. For instance, um, one of the things that it does is it makes five times the amount is needed for an alternative party to get matching funds from what used to be uh, 5,000. You now have to raise 25,000 to to get that same, to get the... Mm. It, um there's a clause now uh, that allows us to, uh, if we get 5% of the vote, we can get grants for the next election to help with. And the idea of those laws was to increase participation and in competition. Um, this bill eliminates that, so you don't have any opportunity to get those grants at all. Wow. Uh, okay. it, it, it eliminates all limits on donations and expenses. What kind of camp- campaign finance reform? Is that? (laughs) Well, you mean
0: you mean donations from corporations as well as individuals. mm
1: -hmm. Wow! No no limits on what you what you spend, where you spend it, and where it comes from. Hmm. Then it inflates the any party that's recognized by the FEC as a national committee um, to give from five thousand to to a candidate to one hundred million dollars five thousand dollars per to a hundred million and what that does is it creates dark money yeah that you know right now if i'm running for office i have to list where i got all my money from now i can give that money to the democratic national committee or the republican national committee and then they donate it and it just says it's coming from them nobody really has any idea where that money is coming from at all so so what what, essentially what it does is though the Alliance party would sit here and go, wow, these, this first half of this is voter access. This is absolutely, this is what we're about. This is what brought most of us together as, as our, as our main point. Mm -hmm. But in the second half of it, it really puts us out of business as being a competing party.
0: Why do you suppose they put that second half in there? I mean, what was, what was the purpose If, if the overall purpose of the, of our founding fathers was to, um, promote competition this seems to shut it down in the name of uh, fighting voter suppression well well, i mean
1: it's it's uh it's the same reason the corporation will put another competitor out of business it's, mm-hmm. it's uh, you know you limit the playing field to now it's just the two of us and we're, we'll keep playing and and you guys can't play anymore
0: wow I yeah, know that um Senator Roy Blunt, uh, he's the Senator from Missouri that did not raise a fist to the insurrectionists. Um, he issued a statement on March 18th of this year where um, he also expressed hesitation with the, with what he calls a federal takeover of our elections. And he did mention uh, campaign finance as one of his concerns. Um, but he also had a different concern, more of a, a, a logistical concern because you're trying to unify you know 10,000 plus jurisdictions and make them all march to the same uh, set of rules. Uh, but he also said that's a security issue, because if you start to unify the voting system, right now the way it is, if you want to attack the voting system in the U.S., you have to have 10,000 different attack vectors uh, you know, from a, from a, a cyberspace uh, perspective versus having just one single attack vector on one big unified uh, voting system. How do you how do you view that? I mean, it, it, I think there's a pretty legitimate argument, actually, that the the um, decentralized voting versus centralized voting.
1: Yeah, I, I think centralized voting. I mean, usually the word centralized usually doesn't sit well. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I think I think the idea of it of centralizing it would would definitely make that easier, unless you still had. I, I think central administration maybe just to ensure that there's certain things that everybody's doing, but then other states still have the freedom to do other things, but it's almost like a minimum. It's like, you know, everybody needs to have at least these voting rights. Everybody needs to be at least doing this, but then you can do everything else the way you want to. I think that's really what, what, uh, is meant by, by centralizing and not really having just one system where everything goes through. Um, but, Mm -hmm. um, that that's really what I see is what's meant by that. Okay. I don't, I, I don't see it possible that, I mean, even in countries where they do have a centralized, like there's one voting day and, and, and it's, you know, it's not divided by States or, or, or sectors of any kind, each, each one locality is still doing their own and then making a report to it. So I don't, I don't really see a, a you know, this one massive system, uh Coming mm-hmm. into being, that doesn't seem practical, really, to me.
0: Okay, okay, that's good. So the um, so the first part of this uh, for the People Act, you talked about that it is good in the sense that it gives voters more um, access to voting. How would that play out? Because we're seeing, you know, we're seeing the Texas State House. I mean, there's been some famous uh, debates going on there regarding. Uh, the wording of their of their latest voting rights uh, rules, uh, using things like purity at the ballot box and things like that, which obviously got thrown out. But uh, but the the um, the central uh, tenets of the bills are still there. Do you think that that the first part of the of the for the people act really would um, undermine or usurp the uh, state houses and all the laws that they're passing? How would that play out?
1: That is the idea, and that really speaks to what you said before about the, the uh, you know, Congress and the federal government does, you know, by that clause does kind of allow them to get involved in those things. I'm sure there will be Supreme Court battles over it. I don't think it's going to be an easy, oh, this is what's going to happen, and and, and and everything's fixed. Um, you know, the, the federal government feeling that it has to fix something that is happening in the states that won't fix themselves is what led to the, the first civil war <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh and and you know I'm, depending on which side you're on um, the outcome of the war did it, it fix the problem mm-hmm. um and and uh you know it's not going to go nothing like here is going to go easy because you know anytime the government the federal government is going to force states to do something but times are changing i mean the whole concept of of the way we do a federated republic
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh it, it isn't really it, it's almost like we should look more like the european union would would actually fit what people want more and, because you're just going to have there's always going to be that who's controlling the federal government is going to oversee the states that don't agree with the federal government because everything is nowadays is 50 mm-hmm. right 50. So, and so depending on which of those 50 is in charge, they're going to try to make the other 50 conform. And that's just, that's just not going to work without people trying to come up with solutions. And right now what we're seeing is nobody wants solutions. So you have the federal government saying, okay, well, we, we have a solution that will force you to fix this because you won't fix it yourself.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. You know, if you know, if you're a supporter of what they're doing, you can go, Oh, this is great. If you oppose it, if you're, if you're kind of neutral, the whole system of a, of a federal republic starts to fall apart there and then that raises the question does it need to be adjusted to where we we do have some minimum things that makes us one republic
0: yeah it's um you're sort of bringing into my mind uh visions of uh, how marijuana is going in this country right now there's a federal uh, law that says you know this stuff is illegal but states are legalizing it and they're sort of taking the initiative uh, to do it. Uh, another more perhaps recent example here is, is uh, in Missouri when it comes to Second Amendment rights. Uh, Missouri basically said we are not going to, or at least the Missouri legislature in their infinite wisdom said they are not going to uh, enforce any sort of federal gun laws that are more restrictive than the state's. And so I see this sort of playing out in in a proxy sort of way with uh, the For the People Act. If if the federal government comes in heavy handed and says, "Okay, this is how you're going to run your votes. This is how you're going to allow people to vote and give people the right to vote. I see some really tough fights going on and I don't see that getting resolved anytime in the next few years.
1: No, there isn't any end in immediate sight, that's for sure. See, the thing is, the government has always been charged, whether we like it or not, with forcing people to do things that seem to be for the collective good. And that can be down as simple as putting a stop sign somewhere. The reason we need that stop sign is because people won't stop on their own. The reason why we need speed limits is because people will drive too fast you know, so, so when people don't have the ability to do what they're supposed to do, the government becomes the big brother and says, well, you know, you guys are killing each other on the streets, so we're going to have to make some laws so these guys don't do that. So, it, so it's kind of, you can see where that, that is constantly always happening that, you know, our inability to do it right makes the government have to come in and say, well, in order to maintain the society, we're going to have to come up with, with rules. And when, You know, when you're looking at states that are that are directly violating the rights of others to be able to participate in a democracy. And, you know, then there's two sides to that coin, of course, you know, some are going to say, well, they have the right to do that or they should be able to do that. But now we have the government saying, you know, well, you don't have the ability to do this on your own. So we're going to come in and do it. But that, you know, that's a dangerous slope. To do that because you know you, you like to think you know the government is always we the people we know that hasn't been that way for a very long time so w- what if what if the government is is uh, is doing what would be most people would perceive to be the bad guy thing and saying well you guys are being too nice and we're going to force you to not be so nice you know so it's a really slippery slope but i don't see how you avoid it because somebody has to be the arbitrator of of things that are going wrong and, it, and it's, there's no perfect system, but I'm not sure how, how you not. And that's where it's important to have the right people in the legislatures. you know, it comes down to that, that, you know, that's where the real change can happen to make sure that when a government is having to be that final arbiter, that we've ensured that the right people are in place to do that. So, It's a big
0: mess. Yeah, you know, I think what makes it an even bigger mess is the fact that we're sorting ourselves uh, as a nation, we're sorting ourselves into two warring camps, and that's where I see the Alliance Party being um, a a real benefit to this country. It's not only the fact that it's not one of the two people that are in the warring camp, but it it really does um, bring some competition into the environment, but also... You talked about the the legislators having the right people in the legislators, in the legislatures. That is key. And I, I, one thing I really like about the Alliance Party is that we're not so issues based. We're more behavior based. You, know, we really believe in the concept of the true statesman, and that's really. And I think that's really the only way you can really resolve these issues once and for all is to get true statesmen in the legislatures across the land, and that doesn't seem to be happening. At least uh, maybe I'm being Cynical, or maybe being pessimistic, but that doesn't seem to be happening these days.
1: No, I think that I think that's very real, um, whether that's cynical or pessimistic or not. But it's real, um, and and the reason for that is the two political parties have the warring factions are there before the parties is the way I see it, and then the parties they just decide which one of those is going to be their targets. And then they become the party of those warring factions. So they're never going to come up with the solution because that, you know, realistically, that's not Mm -hmm. their job. Each one is working for a different side, you know, whether it's coming from money or it's coming from votes. And the problem is, is nobody wants to think pragmatically. And that comes from only having two choices. It becomes an us Mm -hmm. or them, a yes or no, an up or down. Whereas if you have more than, than, and two choices. You can take, you know, in most governments where you have coalition governments. You, you take a state legislature, for instance, where you've got two warring factions that can't get anything done. And nobody is being an arbiter of what really needs to be done. Each one is what, well, what here's what we want, here's what we want. Nobody's really asking the question, well, what do we need mm-hmm. to have done? Whereas if you have uh more than two choices, you know, um, Take the alliance party for instance. If you take a state where you've got one party has a three-member majority mm-hmm. over the other, well, if the alliance won one, three seats and denied both of those the the uh, mm-hmm. majority. What happens is, in order to get any bill passed, both both parties have to come to the alliance party and set for the vote in order to put it over the top to pass it, and that puts the alliance party in a position of saying, look. Yeah, we understand why you like this bill. We understand why you don't like this bill. Why don't you come back with one that you both like, and then we'll help.
0: Yeah. The uh, proverbial fulcrum position. Now,
1: right now, there's no argument. Yeah. There's, there's no marriage conflict, yeah. so to speak. There's no argument. Everybody just digs in.
0: Yeah. Well, even if it, yeah, that you're, t- you're describing like what I would call the fulcrum position, um, the right. um, but even if it's, let's say it's a three-way split, right? 33% of Per, per party, you have three parties in there. And I like your idea. And, and um, my wife is from the Netherlands where they have coalition type governments there where, you know, you, you don't have that majority. You can't dictate uh, policy to everybody. So you have to, to gather a coalition. So if it's a three-way tie, if you have a third of your legislators from each one of three parties, um, it's not really a fulcrum position so much as it is, uh, boy, you guys, you know, you need to roll up your sleeves and, and start talking and, and start hashing this thing out and you're going to give and you're going to get, you know, you get the, the, the sort of horse trading that really was, I think the constitution was designed for, which is not happening these days.
1: Right. And, 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 in actuality, the more than three to more parties you have, the better yeah. it is because each, each one is representing a sector of the population and, and so, and it gives more people representation, you know, when you form, you know, sometimes they have trouble forming a coalition government because they can't, but, but sooner or later, they've got to come to some kind of a compromise just to have a government yeah. at all. And uh, so that really works. And, you know, we're supposed to be the leaders of the free world, but we're, we're, we're not leading or we're, we're lagging yeah. behind.
0: Yeah. Well, <clears throat> according to our political structure, that's true. And I have to admit too, I've, I've, I've been reading this book lately called How Fascism Works from Jason Stanley, and um, I've been actually kind of working to get him on the podcast here. He's a very busy individual. Uh, He teaches philosophy and and, um, has all kinds of other obligations, including his family. So hopefully we can get some time from him to talk to us. But I've been under the influence of this book because I'm seeing so many different aspects of the trend toward fascism, not only in the U.S., but countries across the world populism is taking root conspiracy theories are taking root uh glorification of a fictitious past is taking root everywhere so can you comment on on how the united states is is descending into this into this abyss
1: well, well i guess it begins with uh, you know, what what is fascism appealing and where and what what creates the field where it grows is when capitalism and socialism are, are at, at each other's, you know, there's a war going on. Capitalism has failed. Socialism is being fought against but, and that creates a field for fascism because what happens is um, when you start looking at what's failed, somebody has to be at fault. Whether it be an ethnic group, a nationality, is it the immigrants? Is it the workers' rights? Is destroying the country? You know, what exactly is it? And then everybody, you know, and then what it does is it teaches everybody to okay, let's just get rid of these people that are causing our problems, denying their rights, and we can purify our nation and be like you know what America was meant to be, and then mm-hmm. then that'll keep socialism out. So what, what it does is it says, let's get rid of capitalism, let's create something new, and that'll keep socialism. And that's what fascism is. Fascism is about, um, it's, it, it's, its bitter enemy is laissez-faire capitalism. Hmm. And you know, that, that disappeared in America a long time ago. People try to hold on to it. You hear the libertarians talk about it. But fascism is when corporations take over um, you know, hmm. the, the, the Federal Reserve. Now the whole reason the Federal Reserve was was created in 1913 was because the banks took over the money. They they basically bought the United States. And, um, you know, the the big crash in 1929 was to shift all the money up. You know, millionaires didn't lose any money during the Depression. They took all the money from everybody else. Mm -hmm. That's That's what every recession, that's what every Depression is about. It's about taking, it's about cleaning up. It's about taking money from the bottom and pushing it up. So... Corporatism, you know, Mussolini, who, who coined the phrase fascism, said that it, the, the best term for it is really corporatism, because what it means is that the corporations are now controlling uh, the government.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and, and so and that's what that's what causes it to come. in there. that's what makes it so appealing in America, because capitalism has failed. It failed a very long time ago. It failed, you know, a century ago, maybe more. And there's been this, you know, fascism came into being in in the United States in the 1920s to replace it after the Federal Reserve Act and had had, had all that. And then then Roosevelt came in and halted it. You know, he was what people would call socialist Mm -hmm. uh, in his day, especially, even maybe even today. But what that did is like, they had no idea that this guy could win that election. And, uh, you know, that that changed everything. And then uh, we went into all these programs that, Everybody's fighting. The fascists are fighting it today. Social security, um, any kind of a healthcare, any anything that that the general population would benefit from, because the general population to a fascist is too generalized. It's like, well, you know, that means those people are going to have rights too. Those people are going to have social security, and they are the problem with this country. So you can you can see how we are ripe for that because capitalism is is nearly nearly completely destroyed um and fascism has replaced it because in in a laissez-faire free trade society corporations have to compete. If you take if you take real capitalism capitalism out, they don't. They can just they can do monopolies. They can just take over things. Even even competing corporations will work together to corner a market, even though they're competing. And, you know, there's no capitalism there. There's no laissez-faire. There's just corporate greed and corporate control. And one of the first things that has to go is worker rights. Yeah. Know, because, you know, cap- you know, it, it can't survive without slavery.
0: Yeah. Well, that, that's very interesting. But, but capitalism, I've always had this theory, though, that capitalism by itself would... Always descend along those lines to a uh, to a monopoly, a corporatocracy, and and I guess what we would call fascist nation, because of a lack of enforced competition. Um, you know it, the the uh, the anti uh, um, anti well, wanted to say anti trade laws, but um, I'm trying to think of what that those laws were back in the nineteen twenties that were passed to uh, to prevent companies from, from forming monopolies. Um, antitrust. Pardon me? Antitrust laws. Ah, uh, antitrust. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes my brain just turns off when the microphone opens up, but the, um, but that's where I think this not where democracy comes in in a sense, because you have to have some sort of antitrust laws in order to prevent the corporations from, devolving into this sort of fascist um, approach. And, and in a sense, you know, it, as, as much as companies complain about regulations and that they're holding back the economy and so many people are going to lose their jobs, the, the result, though, of, of having regulations, especially antitrust regulations, is that it keeps competition going and it keeps the, uh, the um, com- capitalism running. So it, it, I guess, I guess a, a completely laissez-faire situation, wouldn't that normally devolve into, um, into fascism, in a sense, without regulation? Yeah. I think it's
1: just natural. I mean, if you just put uh, 150 people into a room with no rules or no supervision, you know, a lot of bad things are going to happen in that room, especially like children. And we're all like children. Mm-hmm. The, the antitrust laws go back to Teddy Roosevelt, Mm-hmm. Before the fascists took over, because he saw it coming, you know, he, he needed to protect the the environment with national parks, and you know, he he would have been like the great progressive mm-hmm. of his era, you know, that you know that was the progressive era actually, because he was looking at what was happening in the late eighteen hundreds, <clears throat> with with the way corporations were going, with the railroads and all the stuff that was going on, worker rights, you know, it's so when when unionism started to f- flourish in eighteen late 1800s and Mm -hmm. Teddy Roosevelt was one of the biggest proponent of that progressive agenda saying that we need to make laws to curb these people because they're just they're just running amok making up their own rules and 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 a lot of those those laws were attacked during the fascist period of the 1920s you can look up all kinds of different rules that kind of sought to change that um one of them being the the uh, federal reserve act
0: okay yeah, mentioned Teddy Roosevelt. One of my heroes from that era is uh, is uh, fighting Bob Lafollette from uh, from Wisconsin, governor and then uh, senator from Wisconsin. Um, also a very progressive person. So getting back to a more contemporary uh, uh, discussion about fascism, though, I, I I guess most people would not believe that we are fascist at this point, but as I mentioned earlier, that we're we're seeing trends toward fascism all over the world, and according to this to the to this book um, that I cited earlier, uh, how fascism works, uh, there are certain mechanisms that are used. There is this glorification of a mythic past, for example, and I would just say, okay, make America great again. You know, that that's this mythic past. There's also this us and them mentality, and um, and even though racism is not Overtly uh, expressed these days, at least in this country, that you still see it in a sort of a dog whistle sort of way. We you, you, you see phrases like "we are the makers, they are the takers." Well, we all know who we and they are, right? It's it's the it's the it, it's it's dividing people into different classes and uh, putting one class ahead of another, uh, us and them mentality again. So, in, in a more contemporary sense, it seems like the fascists are still Fighting for uh, to convince the masses, but um, they're succeeding. We've seen the insurrection in January on January six, and it's not over. Yeah, I think as you said, it's not over, and I don't know how, how does this end. I mean, what how does this what happens? What happens from this point forward?
1: Well, I don't think we're close enough to the end to see how it ends. I think uh, uh, we haven't seen the last of fascism. I think it's just picking up speed. Mm-hmm. You know, people like to call it Trumpism. Um, Trump was a good poster child. Trump isn't the leader of fascism, but Trump is the poster child. Just like Adolf Hitler was the poster child for it in Nazi Germany. You know, he didn't invent fascism there either. Mm-hmm. In fact, it was the American corporations that put him in power. He was he was their puppet. And I think I think. Of the american corporations thought that trump was to be their pu- puppet and he would be like this uh you know uh, decisive leader that everybody followed blindly and you know 50 percent of the population or maybe not 50 percent, but a large percent of the population does i think uh you know one of the things to finalize fascism is uh, you got to have that one author yeah you know
0: authority figure authority
1: figure yeah um who, who would be in charge, you know, almost like a dictator, and you know that's going to be hard to pull off in America because, you know, above all, people aren't going to tolerate that. But you can see where people are willing to accept, you know, it's like, well, you should just do it anyway; it doesn't matter what Congress says. You know, that's one of the most dangerous things no. uh, that we can say as a people, um, and you know that that's just really bad. We can say that Congress might not be doing their job because the right people aren't there. We can say that, but the institution of Congress needs to be protected at all costs. And uh, so I I think it's going to, you know, as you look through fascism in American history, I mentioned before about Roosevelt's election kind of halted that for a while. But he left power and, you know, uh, Prescott Bush worked hard to reinstate the bankers and fascism in the 1950s. And, you know, Nixon became its poster child. Um, Then JFK put a stop to it for a while, but then, you know, went right back into it when Reagan took over. And you know there's always something that stops it you can go you know, obama put a stop to it and you know now Bi- biden how long would that last you know because look at history and have all those quick stops they've just been quick stops so what does it look like afterwards and you know you know there was a huge business plot to assassinate uh, fdr by the corporate uh people in 1933. If history repeats itself, I uh, wouldn't surprise me to see the same type of uh, attempt on Biden's life, and I'm sure they've had this conversation more than we have. Yeah. And how does it end? I don't know because the, the two warring factions that we talk about aren't coming closer together. I don't. I don't see it anyway. I don't see it any spot where where more compromise. It seems to be going the other direction that it, that people are entrenching more and more and you see it and the the sad thing is you see it um everywhere yeah you, know, you see even people walking on the street that you know in a matter of moments you know on a train ride people talking and they divide into their camps mm-hmm. after a conversation the way everybody goes to their you know oh you're one of them or and the other one goes oh you're one of them and you know there's never an us everybody's a them yeah. and and i, I don't I, I don't see a simple or quick solution until people start Start saying, you know, we're all in this together. Can we can we do this? Because, you know, you know, we're, we're both sides are on the same ship and we're both trying to destroy it for the other one. Well, it's going to go down for both.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. I, I don't I don't really see I don't have the solution to put it that way. I don't, I don't know if anybody does, but I don't.
0: Well, there's some, I guess it, it, what I'm also seeing here and, and just sort of adding to what you're talking about here is several disturbing trends in this country. Um, but one of the things that, 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 I read another book recently called Let Them Eat Tweets. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard of that book, but it's kind of that, yes. somewhat reflective of uh, Let Them Eat Cake. I think uh, Marie Antoinette uh, said that during the, uh, just prior to the French Revolution, Written by Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson, let them eat tweets, and they identify something called the conservative dilemma. And the conservative dilemma is this how do we consolidate power and money into the hands of the few plutocrats when the votes are in the hands of the masses? And the result I mean, this, this book is very well written and it just leads you right to the result. The result is that you start, you, you create what's called, what I would call culture wars you make the the debate about things like uh, uh, right to uh, abortion debates or uh, uh, Second Amendment debates. Um, I mean, just go down the line, uh, flag burning. Right. Um, all these different cultural debates that are... F- the, the, the flames are fanned by, you know, the people like uh, the late Rush Limbaugh or, or uh, you know, all, just about every commentator you can find on Fox TV. It, it's, um, and it has gotten it has mobilized successfully, I would say very successfully has mobilized the mentality of this country to a point where um, you look at everybody through this lens of partisanship. Like you say, two guys, you know, sitting together on a train or whatever. Oh, you're one of them. You're one of them. It it just becomes part of the conversation. And this this divide and conquer is really a mechanism of fascism.
1: What I see is positive in all this. And I don't don't think anybody can like wave a wand and and make things go away, uh, because that's just not where we're at. But what I do see is the future, the the next generations coming up are not as solidified into camps. They're they're much more uh, tolerant. They're much more open to debate. They're much more, let's just do what we need to do and drop the labels. You know, and, and and this is where the Alliance Party, uh, we, you know, what we discovered and when, what made us say that, you know, nobody's the party of the future. Everybody's the party of the past or the party of the next election. nobody's looking at the future. What does the next generation look like? Because the people, people today that are voting and jumping into their camps are not going to live forever. That's mm-hmm. just a fact, a sad one, but a fact. And the ones coming up after them Aren't not going to look like the voters do now, and that's what that's what we that's what our research showed. That's what our polling showed, and and uh, that gap is going to close through attrition
2: mm-hmm.
1: as time goes by. Uh, I hate to think that we have to wait for that to happen, which is why the Alliance Party is saying, "Look, we've seen the future, you know, and we we know what what." what direction we're going to go, maybe we should start doing that now. And that's, you know, that's right. Let's own our future and let's do it. Let's do it now. And 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 that can start to bring that piece together. And that's where all of our research and that's where all of our anything we're doing with policies or, or solutions that we're offering, or at least things we need to look at is coming from where do the solutions lie? Well, the solutions are always in the future because we haven't done them yet. So mm-hmm. every solution lies in the future. So when you look at that, um, and that gives you some hope that, that you know, I may not live to see it. You may not live to, but, but what we see is attrition is going to make this work. And America is not going to look like it does now because it can't continue to look like it does now. It cannot. It, it's going to break. Yeah. And and you know, what which happens first, the break or the attrition. And that's where we come in. That's why we're saying let's own our future today. Let's start working on our future today. And and so I think there is hope, um, but but we have to start you know being realistic on on what's happened because fascism isn't isn't going to work if if the next generation doesn't like it unless we allow it to solidify itself. That there, because it will rely on being able to vote. You yeah. Know the next generation will have to be able to have a say, they will have to still be we the people. If our generation today allows that we the people to fall apart and the fascists win, they will not have the opportunity to make that change. And that's why we need to own our future.
0: Well, I've, I've got another take on that as well. Um, I think it's imperative and important that um, the Alliance Party, and as well as other parties, other uh, parties outside the duopoly, uh, rise to some level to give this younger generation a place to go to, um, because you know I've I'm pretty uh, I'm getting up there in age, and I was just a little kid back in the nineteen sixties, but even even then I remember. Um, that was the generation that was going to you know, promote peace, love, make love, not war. And, but it, it got lost. I think that, that um, I'm, maybe I'm just oversimplifying it, but it seemed like there's no place for that type of mentality to go. And eventually the, the system took over, right? And, and we are where we are today. So I think it's very important that the Alliance Party um, provide a place for people that are sick and tired of the duopoly and really want to look for new ideas and promote those new ideas.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think, I think a a major event that destroyed, um, the generation you speak of hopes and and dreams was the assassination of RFK. Mm -hmm. I think, um, I, I think that, I think there was a big hope that, you know what, the democratic party could be the a party of the future. It was, it was, all, you know, it was all about the youth need to take over. I don't know how many times RFK would say and say, Hey, look, the future is yours. The future is not mine. And, and, uh, and, you know, the, the anti-war, you know, everything that was happening in the 1960s was was gathering around that idea. And he was their, he was their poster child. Mm-hmm. He was their spokesman. It's like, Hey, I'll start this thing. And then I'll hand it over to you. And then boom, it yeah. All ended, and, and and the Democratic Party, is, in my opinion, has never really recuperated from the assassination of RFK.
0: Wow. Well, that that plus there were other, like uh, Martin Luther King, around that same year same, as same well. Year, yeah, yeah, same summer. Yeah. And it, yeah. it um, yeah, I mean, okay, I'm it not going to buy into conspiracy theories, but you know, it worked out very conveniently for some elite groups of people for this to happen, but. Uh, It was a big uh, loss for the rest of the country.
1: Right. And by the way, just because the theory isn't proven doesn't mean it's not right.
0: That's true. But I always have to be careful because uh, every time I open my mouth and say something, I think, okay, I better be, you know, you got to be more responsible uh, with the words that you say, especially when other people are listening.
1: Yeah, 1968 was one of those critical years where things changed drastically. And I think we're still trying to come out of the results of that.
0: Yeah. let um. If we may touch on something that's going on today, I mentioned in the uh, at the top, uh, uh, um, Israel and, and um, uh, Israelis and Palestinians. Um, I look at them as somewhat of a this this conflict as somewhat of a crucible that the world looks at. It it's um it it's playing out as I believe it's playing out as a as uh, an example of the tendencies of colonialism um, running into the, you know, ugly reality of, of human suffering, and it, it, it's amazing to me how, how people are sorting themselves over that conflict. Uh, there's this sort of blind um, adherence to the Israeli perspective that says, you know, we, we need to stand with Israel. Uh, but at the same time, there's a lot of atrocities taking place. And there, there's two sides of the story. And it's forcing us all to look at ourselves and say, you know, is this who we are? You know, do we do we just go into a conflict like this and choose sides and, and start enforcing it and and uh, ignore uh, voices from both sides? Ignore voices, I should say, ignore voices from the other side. How do you see this conflict playing out? Do you see it as sort of a, as I do, sort of a crucible as, as you know, a, a place for us to observe how all these forces are coming to play?
1: Absolutely. Everything that we're talking about is, is it's almost like ground zero. And, 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 in, in time, when you when look at history, you know, and, and you always look at history and you go like, well, that would never happen to us. And, you know, we've gotten better since then, but when you look at all the Holocausts throughout history, you like to think that those are things of the past mm-hmm. and nobody really wants to think that, wow, this is still happening here. And nobody wants to say, oh, and, we're a root cause or supporter of that and and that's a hard pill to swallow especially when when you know one side is being driven by religio nationalism and in, into into picking up one side and they try to make it a religious thing but it, it's not a religious thing first of all Zionism and Judaism is not the same thing and and to be an Israeli does not mean you're Jewish mm-hmm. and vice versa and it, colonialism is 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 it's the bane of human existence. I mean, for centuries, it's been a problem. Almost every problem in the world that exists today is a result of colonialism. And we, we need to get into the post-colonial era. And what, we, what this as a crucible shows us is that we're nowhere near ready to leave the post-colonial era. I mean, you look at, um, you know, when, when the British um, seized the area after World War, one from mm-hmm. from the uh Ottoman. Ottomans from mm-hmm. the Turks you know you know they went in there right away and and kind of like said well you know, you know their policies were bad you know at at best you know before the british got there the palestinian jews christians and 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 muslims and they didn't call themselves jews or christians and muslims they all called themselves palestinians whether you were one of those or not they were all that and um the policies there Uh, based on Zionism, that was was controlling a lot of what was going on in both the UK and the United States, just made some really bad policies and some animosity. And then after World War II, it became a bigger problem. And then they handed it over to the United Nations, and they made it even worse. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, it's just, you know, just picture a situation, you know, people say, oh, there's got to be a two-state solution. But a two-state solution is not as easy as it sounds, because for there to be a two state solution one one is conceding most everything in those negotiations let us say that the united nations decided that cuba doesn't have enough room so they're going to cede florida to cuba Mm -hmm. that's a united nations decision nobody has a say in it this is just what's going to happen and they're going to start moving the floridians out not even send them someplace just go you've got to get out Mm -hmm. not prepared a place for you but you've got to get out and if you don't, we're going to shoot you. And and over time, we take it over. And then and we want a little more land than me. You know, maybe we're going to spread into Georgia a little bit, you know, because we need a little bit more. And we're just going to keep moving people out. And if they don't go, we're just going to eliminate them.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: then to stabilize the society, we're going to take away all their rights. They're going to take away health care. They're going to take away everything that every other um, Cuban has. Mm-hmm. The people that were living there when it was Florida don't have any rights. They can't vote. And they're just we're just going to indiscriminately start killing them so that eventually they won't exist anymore. How do you come up with a solution that says, well, we're going to give half of Florida to Cuba. It's like, well, no, it it all belongs to Florida. Mm -hmm. You know? So, so Florida is conceding a great deal when you say, well, you know, as a peaceful solution, we're just going to say, you know, you just give up half of yours to them. It's not that simple to come up with a two state solution. And, and until Americans look at this as it is, is that it's just genocide, one human to another human, forget nationalities, forget religion, forget your political beliefs. You've got one group of people that is in power, that is uh, violating every human right. The United States is one of the few countries in the world that doesn't recognize this. I think there's only maybe four or five in the world. And for us to be complicit in any way, of our political beliefs or our religions, um, that this is okay. Is that crucible to make us go? It's like, well, this is another very dark moment in human history. And which side of that are we on?
0: Yeah. No, that's very well put. I, I like your, I like your analogy there too, with, uh, with, um, putting Cuba and Florida that brings it, that brings it closer to home makes you really think about it.
2: Right.
0: Well, um, I wanted to hit one other topic today, which um, nothing happens without money. And um, that's an unfortunate truth about life. But um, we've been going down this gaping abyss known as the national debt. And just this morning, as a matter of fact, I I checked the U.S. Debt Clock. It's a website called usdebtclock.org, all one word usdebtclock.org and um, holy cow uh, we're at twenty eight trillion dollars of debt right now at the federal at the federal government which works out to a debt per citizen of about eighty five thousand dollars now if you take the fact that a lot of citizens don't pay tax because you know they're basically babies or children or whatever um, per taxpayer it's up around two hundred thousand dollars or something in that area. Um, And obviously things only got worse through the pandemic, but even prior to the pandemic, there was the 2017 um, Tax Relief Act, which um, reduced taxes on corporations even further. And my recent uh, news reading leads me to believe that Joe Biden is not going to fight that. Um, Wow, what's going to happen? I mean, how, how much further can we spiral into this? into this debt before something gives.
1: Well, this is this is a this is two or three shows all by itself. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's <laughs> but, um, true. But the,
1: the thing we have to keep in mind is uh, the fiat money and that and that the government is the issuer of money. They're not they're not saying here's a dollar's worth of currency for a dollar's worth of gold.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: They're the issue of money. Now the state was in debt they would have a lot more problems and would see a lot more results of that because they're not the issuers. The way our money works, putting it simply, is there's no such thing as money in the United States. There's only a need for money Mm -hmm. in the United States. What fiat money does is, and the way the the Federal Reserve works, is the the money that's needed is circulated and it's actually, what makes it work is debt. And the more debt, people have. And the more debt the United States has, the more that money is worth. Now, you can, you can have too much into circulation, that lowers the value of it. But you can change that because you're the issuer of the money. So it all comes down to the need for money, more than the debt itself, like the United States is never actually going to pay that debt, they're not going to write a check to Capital One, for their share Mm -hmm. of that the banks own the money. Now, that's what the Federal Reserve System did. So their ability to loan it out is what makes that money work. It, the, the ability to keep it moving is mm-hmm. how it works. Like, like when you pay income tax to the, to the United States, it, it doesn't go into some, some bank account somewhere or they have got this big Fort Knox where they're storing it all. It's, it's just numbers moving on a computer. There's no real money taking place because they're the issuer
2: mm-hmm.
1: of that money. So, so the amount of debt um, what what it will do is it can change the value of the money because you know how much you're taking out of circulation because of that debt, mm-hmm. and you know it, it's why they can't just say well we'll just print three trillion more dollars. You know it's it's the reason because it's how money works is how it moves, and and the debt is how it moves. For instance, generally speaking, and these numbers may be a little off, but you know there's there's six trillion dollars is is the, is the gross domestic, you know, that that's the uh, and then you have a trillion dollars in circulation, we'll say mm-hmm. so what that would mean is that is that to maintain that economy that that each dollar needs to be indebted somewhere for six times. Mm-hmm. So I take my dollar and I buy a car. And I mean that I go to the bank, they give me a dollar, right? Mm-hmm. And so they lent me that dollar. So now, And then I pay that dollar back plus interest so they get that dollar back. Now that bank takes that same dollar and gives it to somebody in a credit card. And they pay that dollar back plus interest. And that's how they're making money. And mm-hmm. then they'll take that same dollar and they'll give it to somebody in a mortgage. And, then, and And that happens six times. So if that slows down, then they have to change the interest rates to speed it up. Mm-hmm. If it goes too fast they have to change the interest rate to slow it down to maintain that six to one ratio or whatever Mm -hmm. that exact number is, And that's how, that's how our money works. So, so being in debt, creates a need for money. And that's what sets the value of the money is our need for it. So the, the, it's not the same as if a state owed $200 million in debt, because they, you know, they're not the issuers of that money. They'd have to pay somebody that money. Whereas banks through the Federal Reserve own the money and produce the money. It's not really, it's, it's not as an extreme problem as it's. That's why a lot of people, you know, that, that should be taken this more serious, don't really take it that serious. Cause they know that it's, it's really not as, as serious a thing. It, it could have, it has more of an effect on your value against other currencies, perhaps that mm-hmm. aren't doing it that way because, because, you know, they have a dollar's worth of gold for a dollar or silver or whatever it is that's backing it but we we only really have a promise yeah of of a dollar and that promise can be broken so so i'm I'm not trying to say that isn't important but i but i don't think it's as critical a problem as as we think it is
0: Well, that's um, that's perhaps good news because I've noticed that um, over the last um, year since the pandemic has hit us, we've we've had to, um, we as a nation have had to try to keep some businesses afloat. You know, especially the service-based businesses that are, that that require human interaction in order to conduct business, in you know, a restaurant or whatever, um, and that has added a lot to our debt Uh, just prior to that. I know that uh, when the 2017 Tax Relief Act was passed, um, it was based on some very optimistic uh, forecasts for future, uh, which just got blown up by COVID. So there's a sense uh, among lay people like myself that, okay, well, (laughs) we're overextending ourselves. Um, hopefully somebody who really understands how this big picture works is taking into account all this debt and all the money and the velocity of the dollar that the, the amount of the times the dollar changes hands and the amount of debt that we're carrying, that everything remains in balance. Um, it is yeah. a little bit disturbing to think that it may get out of balance and God only knows you know how it remains in balance. It's... Uh, um, Economics is never my strong suit, so I can't really add too much to this conversation.
1: Yeah. The interesting thing about economics is we're more like, well, what is it doing today? Because, you know, how, how does it work? For instance, putting more money into the economy. And, and this, is where, this is where people don't understand how a higher minimum wage helps small businesses. And people go like, how is that even possible? Well, the reason is because people who have money spend money, people who don't have money don't spend money. So the economy to work, people have to spend it. So, so I get paid for my employer right? and, and I, what do I do with it? I go out to eat. I, I pay my car payment. I'm doing something with that money and it's moving and that's causing other people to do things. I own a small business. I have a small diner in town or whatever, and I'm dependent on people having money to be able to come to me. Now, if, if, if everybody is paying, a wage that's less, that's only allowing the people that live in that area to just survive, they're not going to go to that diner. So the minimum yeah. wage being low is what causes you to be struggling and not being able to pay a higher wage. It's a vicious circle. And 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 that and the economy is being destroyed by people not having money. Yeah. When people only have money to, to eat, pay for a home, and decide which bill to pay that month, they're not going out to the stores to help the small businesses so so it's not hurting the big businesses much because they're the ones who own the corporations of the things that people have to pay you know Mm -hmm. whether it's a mortgage company or a car payment or you know that's why you know those are the ones that you are going to get paid you may not eat for two or three days and you may have your lights turned off but but you will pay those big corporate bills Mm -hmm. and and so so um getting money into circulation is what well, that's the only thing that can save it. Paying off the debt won't do anything to that because all that all that does is is um, change how much is owed to the banks that own the Federal Reserve, and then all you're really doing is shifting the money from the small people back up to the big people, which is the, perp- the whole purpose of our economy is to take money from the bottom and put it to the top and just keep just keep that going, and that's you know, that's that's the whole purpose of it.
0: Well, that's um. I mean, there was this trickle down economics theory that that uh, became very popular when Reagan was president, and um, I, I think what you're talking about there is like, like I guess I would call it bubble up, or maybe percolate up, where right. uh, if you if you have more money at the uh, at the local level, um, yeah, then businesses will stay in business, and and uh, yeah, I I definitely that part of economics I, I, I pretty much get, and I've often advocated that um $15 minimum wage is not enough it um yeah. actually should be more i don't know why people settled on $15 but uh
1: yeah it was kind of a compromise i think um you know i think reagan was was dead on with his concept of trickle down economics you know if you live in a neighborhood if you live in a very affluent neighborhood and your child will get the job of mowing the lawns and raking leaves at all of all the people in there, so it creates that job for them. If you live in an area where people don't have any money, they're doing that themselves. Mm-hmm. To put it simply, I think I think he was right that if you you k- kicked it up to these guys who who can do something with the money, they have the means to do something with it. That that would they would spend money on infrastructure, they would you know help roads and all that stuff. I think that was a really good concept. The problem is they didn't do it. It was I don't think it was Reagan's fault that they didn't do it. I think it was the corporation's fault. With well, no, that's more profits to us.
0: Right, that goes to our shareholders, and that also right. uh, gives the concept,
1: them. I think dead on.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I guess in theory that you're right, but the human nature is not that way, is it? Because right. you know, we give a rich guy more money, he's going to think, okay, I'm going to I'm going to now try to cut my costs even more by investing in a corporation overseas where i can pay people less and uh, start shipping stuff back and forth and the whole situation becomes um sure the money goes to the top but it doesn't ever seem to trickle back down again right, uh,
1: and that's kind of proven yeah <laughs> okay, it's not going to be. yeah yeah
0: okay well i think we hit on all the topics here we've been we've been at this um,
2: that was amazing yeah covered all that
0: a little bit more in an hour, yeah. We I think we hit just about everything that I, I was I wasn't sure we were going to be able to get everything. Um, we've actually gone over an hour here a little bit, so I guess we should uh, we should wrap this up. Um, we're talking with uh, Tim Cotton, the political director for the Alliance Party. Um, Tim, uh, always a very pleasure, very pleasurable to, to talk with you. I learn I learn something every single time we talk. It's wonderful to have you on the show again.
1: Thanks. It was great to be here again.
0: Good. And thank you for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify, or just about anywhere that holds podcasts. If you enjoyed listening to today's podcast and would like to get involved in the Alliance Party, please see our website at www.theallianceparty.com, all one word, theallianceparty.com. As we expand the party, we need your involvement. Democracy is not a spectator sport. Donations and volunteers are always welcome. If you'd like to contact us at the Alliance Party After Dark, drop us an email at podcast at theallianceparty.com. Also, see our Twitter page at Alliance On Air. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for this evening's edition of the Alliance Party After Dark, and on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe, be aware, and please take care of yourself and those around you.